This morning, we are celebrating or we are participating in Education Day. Our speaker this morning is Dr. David R. Williams. And Dr. Williams is the Florence and Laura Norman Professor of Public Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. He is also Professor of African and American, African and African American Studies and of Sociology at Harvard University. In his first six years in academia, he was at um, Yale University where he was an assistant to associate professor of sociology. The next 14 years, he was at the University of Michigan where he was the Harold Cruz Collegiate Professor of Sociology. He is a senior research, he was a senior research scientist at the Institute of Social Research and a professor of epidemiology in the School of Public Health. That's a lot of work. <laughs> um, Dr. Williams has distinguished himself in countless ways, including as a researcher who has received national and international recognition for his scholarship. He is internationally recognized as a leading social scientist focusing on social influences on health. He is um, considered one of the most cited black scholars in social sciences in the year 2008. And according to the ISI Essential Science Indicators, he was one of the top 10 most cited researchers in social science during the decade of 1995 to 2005. He has been invited to be a keynote speaker in scientific conferences in Europe, Africa, Australia, South America, and across the United States. He's been involved in the development of health policy at the national level here in the United States. And in my reading, I found that he has worked with the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and most recently, an advisor within the Obama administration. He has been a consultant to federal and state health agencies, private foundations, and the World Health Organization. Dr. Williams has also appeared on national television, including the ABC Evening News, CNN, PBS, C-SPAN, and the Discovery Channel. He is also a key scientific advisor to the award-winning PBS film series, Unnatural Causes, in, is inequity making us sick? Dr. Williams works on, most, on some of the most pressing issues of our times, the unequal distribution of health and health care. But first and foremost, he is a friend and a colleague of mine, and we both um, work together with the board of Oakwood University. So not only is he providing education to the world, but he's also providing support and wisdom to Adventist higher education. Amen. He is a Seventh-day Adventist committed Christian, and he's a product of Seventh-day Adventist Christian education. 
I would like to introduce to you before we begin his wife, Opal, his daughter, Alicia, if you would please stand, and his niece, Shandell. They are visiting us from Boston. <clears throat> the reason that Dr. Williams is in town, <clears throat> besides speaking for us this morning, is that he is the winner of the 211 Reader Award. This is an award that is given by the American Sociology Association. And on Monday, he will be receiving this prestigious award and presenting his um, his presentation in receiving of this award. The next voice you will hear after listening to our youth choir will be my friend and colleague, Dr. David Williams. And here you him. I forgot. I wanted to remind you again that at 4.30 this afternoon, he will be back with us to talk about the African-American community and health issues as they are uh, involved with the African-American community here. Thank you, and we look forward to having you back at that time.
I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Not sure if you're out there this morning. Let me try that one more time. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. It is a blessing for me to be here with you at Abundant Life Seventh Adventist Church this Sabbath. Um, your former pastor, Elder Rock, and Dr. White have been trying to pull this off for some time, but the Lord has his own time, so I'm glad that I can be with you today. I'm thankful to God for bringing me here. Um, it took 18 hours from the time I left home in Boston yesterday before I landed in Las Vegas early this morning. So, in fact, if I wasn't preaching today, I, I, I might fall asleep in the service. But God is good. At one point along the way, as I was in transit at Kennedy Airport, and because of the weather, the en entire airport was shut down. No flights taken off or leaving. The first flight to Las Vegas was canceled. I thought I might have to call Dr. White and say, I can't get there in time, but the Lord is good. And I'm glad that he worked it out so that I could be here. So it's a thrill and a blessing for me to fellowship with you this morning and also this afternoon. This afternoon what I will do will be talking a little bit about some of the challenges um, the African-American community faces in terms of health. This is an area of my research. I'm one of the leading researchers nationally doing work looking at African-American health and its challenges. But I also want to share with you both some practical strategies of what the Abundant Life Church can do to make a difference in the community in terms of health. But secondly, I also want to share with you some recent research. Recent scientific studies show that it is possible to completely reverse heart disease. Your doctor may not have told you about it, but it's published in the scientific literature. Recent scientific studies also show it's possible to reverse diabetes. If you're diabetic, need to be on a special diet, need to take insulin, it's possible that you can make changes in your lifestyle, that you wouldn't have to take insulin anymore, as long as you stick with the program. And I want to share with you some of that um, this afternoon. So do come back. And I also want to have some time, uh, talk briefly, but have some time for interaction. If you have questions on health, if you have questions on education and higher education and, and what are the options, opportunities for you, I'd be happy to talk about that as well. But it's a, a pleasure to be here with you. I want to acknowledge, my family was acknowledged, but I have uh, two very special friends that made it here today. Um, Brother Fred Ball, he actually lives in Las Vegas half the time. Um, he is my financial planner. Uh, we go back to my days in Michigan, where his wife was a faculty member with me, another Seventh Adventist faculty member at the University of Michigan, and now she's a faculty member at Stanford University, uh, where she heads up the African American Studies Department. That's a black Seventh-day Adventist. Say amen, somebody. And another very dear friend in the family who's here is Dr. Yvonne McKinney. Thanks for driving all the way from California to be here today, and, and thrilled to have you here with us, and brought uh, uh, some other wonderful friends from, who speak Dutch. So it's, it's good to have you all um, here today. My message today is entitled, The Crisis in Christian Education. The Crisis 
in Christian education. Let's look to the Lord. Father in heaven, this is your place and these are your children. And the words of sinful mortal man cannot suffice. We need to see Jesus today and we need to hear from Jesus today. As we open the pages of your word today, I pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. But above all, Lord, what we are not, make us. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a crisis in Christian education today because many of us are confused about what Christian education really is. Our understanding, I'm saying, of Christian education is limited. We think of Christian education often as church schools and Adventist teachers and certain kinds of textbooks and curriculums and institutions. But while Christian education includes all of these things, it is much, much more than a system of formal education. What is Christian education, you say? We find the answer in our scripture reading this morning. In Mark 10, verse 13, we read that they brought, parents, brought their children to Jesus that he might touch them. Christian education is more than completing a certain course of study. It's more than living in a certain kind of environment. It's more than getting a certain grade on exams. Christian education is the process of introducing children, youth, and adults to Jesus. Amen. In the book we are, uh, Education, we are told that the purpose of education is the same as the purpose of redemption. The goal of both is to bring about a new creation, to restore in man and woman the image of God. That is the object of education. That is the great object of life. True education, then, is the development not just of the mind and the intellectual powers. No, what are we told? It is the harmonious development of the spiritual, the mental, and the physical powers. And true Christian education prepares the student for the joy of service in this world and for the higher joy of wider service in the world to come. We cannot understand Christian education unless we understand the plan of salvation. We cannot understand Christian education unless we recognize God's purpose for our lives. In John 1.12 we are told, As many as receive Jesus Christ, to them he gives the power, the authority, to become sons and daughters of God. Church, we are called to be kings. Joint heirs with Christ, the King of Kings. We have been called to be priests and kings unto God. We have been called to share Christ's throne, to be witnesses to the mystery of his grace in this world and in the world to come. And Christian education is simply preparation for our calling. The purpose of Christian education is to restore the image of God in us and to prepare us to sit on the right hand of God. The goal is godliness, godlikeness, and our preparation must be commensurate with our calling. In Mark 10, 13, our scripture reading tells us a very interesting story. 
it says that Christian education, mothers, in their search of Christian education, was bringing their children to Jesus so that Jesus could bless them. But there was a problem. There was a crisis. Parents are bringing their kids to Jesus, but some people were obstructing the process. The scene is described in the original Greek passage by the use of two imperfect tenses. They are tenses that describe continuous action in pastime. In other words, the key people kept bringing their children to Jesus, and the disciples kept rebuking them. In fact, the book Desire of Ages describes the scene. It says that a mother woke up that morning with the thought that she wanted the blessing of God on her children. So she set out on a mission to bring her children to Jesus so he could bless them. Along the way, she told another mother. And that mother told another mother. And soon we had a little procession of mothers with their children moving towards the Savior. But when they got within the reach of Jesus, somebody proceeded to interfere. Somebody tried to block the plan. Somebody tried to prevent the parents from getting to Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus rebuked them. Rebuke is a strong word. It means to threaten, to intimidate, to prevent. Now the disciples had good intentions. Jesus, after all, was on his way to the cross. The shadow of Golgotha's hill was hanging on his head. There was tension on the mind of Jesus. The disciples didn't fully understand what was going through his mind, but they knew that their Lord was burdened. And with their good intentions, they wanted to protect Jesus. They didn't want him to be bothered. They had the best of intentions, but they were blocking access to Jesus. They were thwarting God's plan of Christian education. They were shutting down the lanes on the freeway that leads to Jesus. They were causing a traffic jam on the road to glory. People with good intentions, sincere, they meant well, but they were blocking Christ's plan of Christian education. It's instructive to me that it was the disciples who were blocking God's plan. The disciples, they were very good people. They were the leaders of the church that were handpicked by Jesus. They were the school board members, the pastors, the church officers, the parents, the disciples. They were the conference, the union, the general conference. The disciples, this was the church. Good people with good intentions. Christ's assistance, but blocking the pathway for the children to get to Jesus. There's a crisis in Christian education today because nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Parents, teachers, church leaders, and church members are still being stumbling blocks in the pathway of many of our youth getting to God. Why are young people turned off by religion? Why do so many of our youth raised in the church, and by the way, the General Conference North American Division just did a study, 50% of baptized Seventh-day Adventists in the North American division at age 14 and 15, 50% are not Adventists 10 years later. 50%. We are losing 50% of our kids. Why is it that a youth raised in the church, trained in our schools, sometimes have hostile feelings towards God and his church? 
Why are our SDA youth in increasing numbers rejecting religion? The answer, plain and simple, is us. We are blocking their access to Jesus. We are chasing them from the master. And you say, Brother Williams, you don't know nothing about me, so how could you say that? And how do we do this? Why are they turned off? The answer, research has been done on this in the Adventist church and in the Christian church in general. The answer, why are youth turned off from Jesus? The answer is the gap between adult religious profession and their religious practice. In other words, we don't live what we preach. Many young people have looked at many of us and they have concluded, to put it more bluntly, we are a bunch of hypocrites. Young people look at the lives of grown-ups in the church. Those who put such high stock in religion, they have decided they don't want to be like us. If religion is responsible for what the youth see in their parents and teachers, the behavior they sometimes see in business meetings, then the teachers feel, then the teenagers feel that they should wash their hands of religion, the sooner the better. In other words, youth often see that the very parents and teachers who are so firm in insisting that young people conform to their religious standards are the same parents and teachers who do not conform themselves. Or if they conform to the standards, they violate other principles that the Bible teaches that the youth see as more fundamental and vital. What I'm saying this morning is that moral preaching and teaching that is not backed up by Christian behavior is largely a waste of time and effort. Our children will not do, will do as we do and not as we say. Many of our young people have a hard time understanding the Adventist father who is very strict about the TV programs that he let his kids watch. He says that most of the shows are not good for the characters of his children. At night, he hurries them off to bed, gets quite upset if the kids are up a few minutes past bedtime. But once the kids are in bed, dad goes into the den to watch the late night movies. Adventist youth have a hard time understanding parents who can spend a whole lot of time at a dinner table on Sabbath afternoon, discussing the prices of goods and services, and the details of how much money they will spend on this or that, but who get very upset if their children played a secular song on Sabbath or took a walk through the mall. Young people do not understand how we make a big point of insisting that they respect us as adults, and we respect them as they respect us as parents, but then they don't, we don't show any respect for our pastor. Youth don't understand how we are so quick to disfellowship unmarried women who get pregnant, while we look the other way at those who break the seventh commandment and condone persons who break the other nine. And it is not just parents. What makes the evidence so overwhelming for youth is that they see this hypocrisy in adult Christians in general. Roger Dudley did a study of Seventh-day Adventist Academy students, and he found that the strongest factor related to teenage rejection of religion was the, the religious insincerity of their teachers. Children who perceived 
that their teachers and elders was insincere and hypocritical in their relationship with God are more likely to be turned off from religion than those who view their teachers and elders as genuine and sincere. And it's not just an Adventist problem. The National Sunday School Association questioned young people who had left the church in more than 2,000 parishes across the country. And the second most frequent reason given for leaving the Christian church was the hypocrisy of adults. This should not surprise us, folks. In the book Education, page 259, Ellen White said, it is because so many parents and teachers profess to believe the word of God while their lives deny its power that the teaching of scripture has no greater effect upon the youth. Let me read that again because we wring our hands all the time of how the youth are out of control. And it says, it is because, this prophet says, it is because so many parents and teachers profess to believe the word of God while their lives deny its power that the teaching of scripture has no greater effect upon the youth. Unquote. And someone says, well, who is sufficient for these things? Who shall be saved if the standard is that high? I have good news for you this morning. Young people do not expect us to be perfect. But they do want sincerity, they do want fairness, and they do want openness. Young people are not turned off by our failures and mistakes as long as we are willing to admit them. Our youth are not asking us to be sinless, but they want us to admit that we are human and acknowledge that our feet too are made of clay. We need to learn to admit our shortcomings and ask our children for forgiveness. Pastor Glenn Kuhn tells a story of a mother who came to him for counseling regarding her teenage son. He was rebelling and she didn't know how to handle the situation. The pastor said to her, I want you to apologize to your son for your irritability and your lack of patience. She said, but pastor, if I do that, he will lose all respect for me. And Pastor Kuhn said, no, he already knows about your faults. He just doesn't know that you know about them. She followed the pastor's advice, and that was the start of an improved relationship with her son. Young people are looking to us adults to be spiritual models. They expect to see that the profession of religion has made father, mother, deacon, elder, kind, thoughtful, and loving. They expect to see adults in the church who have happiness and purpose in life because they are walking with God. They need to know that we too go through the same kinds of struggles that they do and that we have found the grace of God sufficient for our struggles. Most of the youths who are alienated from the church still believe the truth of our message. They accept the doctrines. Their problem is with relating to us. Young people are rejecting Jesus because they don't like our representation of Jesus. They are not really rejecting him, but they are rejecting the kind of Jesus we present. But church this morning, suppose they could look at us 
and find people with whom they could truly identify. Suppose they could look at us and find warm, loving, compassionate, forgiving people. Suppose they could see personal standards that are combined with a great understanding for the weakness of others. Suppose they could see in us people who have a purpose in life, who know where they are going, and who are making their way with a song on their lips and a radiance on their face because Jesus is walking with them. If young people could find us in us, they will say, that's what I want. Let me follow you. Teach me the richness of life that you have found in Jesus. There's a crisis in Christian education today because too often we misrepresent Jesus. There's a second reason for the crisis in Christian education, and it's because of the way we discipline our children. The book Education, page 287, says, the object of discipline is the training of the child for self-government. Think about that. The purpose of discipline is to teach your child to govern himself or herself. Now, it does not say that the purpose of discipline is to teach the child who wears the pants in the house. It doesn't even say that the purpose of discipline is to get the child to obey. It says the purpose of discipline is to teach the child how to govern his or her own behavior. We discipline a child to teach that child self-reliance self and self-control. We try to let that child learn how to govern his or her own behavior so that they don't have to rely on the presence of the parent to do the right thing. Discipline is to teach. Discipline is not punishment. Punishment only frightens or forces a person into compliance, but it doesn't teach the child to do what is right because it is right. Many of us, many of us from the old school, believe there's a direct connection between rules and character. Obey the right rules and you'll develop the right character. Enforcing rules is no guarantee of morality. If a, if a teenager obeys the rules while at home, but begins to violate them as soon as he or she leaves, you can be sure character development is not taking place. The purpose of discipline is to teach our youth to do right because our youth understand and believe that it is right, not because we told them so. A goal of Christian education is to teach the child to think for himself and not to become the mere reflector of other people's thoughts. And when, as parents or teachers, we tell a child who has come to the age of reason, do this, and when they ask why you say do this because I tell you to do it, we are not teaching that child to think for himself. We should not be contented if we are successful in commanding our kids to obey our regulation. We should be satisfied with nothing less than seeing our young people choose to do right because they understand it is right. What are the effective principles of discipline? I don't have time to cover them all today, but let me mention one or two. And I'm drawing heavily from the wonderful wisdom that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been blessed with. First of all, effective discipline grows out of a relationship of love, warmth, 
acceptance, and understanding. You must establish rapport with the individual to be taught. That rapport grows out of showing your children that they are accepted, they are understood, they are loved, and you enjoy being around them. And church and parents, it is not enough to love your children. Your children must believe that you love them. Amen. And the two things don't always go together. I remember many years ago, thousands of miles from here in another city, a father, deacon in the church, called me up. His daughter had run away from home. Didn't know where to find her. Called me a few hours later. They found her. She was now in the psychiatric unit of a local hospital. I went over. I know the father and the mother. They were dear friends of mine. They loved their daughter with all their heart. I went over to see her. And the first thing she told me, my parents don't love me. They don't care about me. Was it correct? No, it wasn't. But they were not loving her in a way that she could understand. God has called us to be fishers of men. If you're going to go fish, you better use the bait the fish like and not the bait you like. You may love cheesecake. You may love cheesecake. That may be your favorite food. But the fish doesn't like cheesecake. So you better use the bait the fish like. We have to speak to our children and relate to them in a way that they understand. When youth experience warmth and love from a parent, they will be open to anything you have to say to them. The teenager who is unsure of their relationship with a parent or teacher, unsure about your feelings towards them, is the youth who will test the rules to see how you will respond. If a parent or teacher responds in a negative manner, reprimanding the child, the child's feeling for not being liked or accepted is reinforced, and he or she falls into a pattern of constantly testing the teacher or parent to see if his feelings about acceptance are true. We have a beautiful example of this principle right in the Bible. You've seen it, but you may have missed the point. Exodus 20. What is Exodus 20 known for in the Bible? It's the chapter with the Ten Commandments. How did God begin the chapter with the Ten Commandments? So get the picture. God is about to give his children the rules that they have to follow. He's about to lay down the law. And how does Exodus 20 begin? I am the Lord thy God who gonna obey you gotta obey me, which has brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God first begins by reminding them just how much he loved them. He loved them so much that he delivered them from slavery. He is their deliverer, he is their redeemer. And because I love you so much, here are some principles for your life that I'm giving you. The book Adventist Home, page 307, 308, says, In the government of children, love must be shown. Now, it didn't say in the government of children, you must have love in your heart. It said in the government of children, love must be shown. They've got to see it. They've got to feel it. Never should parents, it continues, cause their children pain by harshness or unreasonable exactions. She continues, the combined influence of authority and love 
will make it possible to hold firmly and kindly the reign of the reins of family government. How do we establish authority with our children? We have a lot of wrong ideas about this. You don't establish authority by maintaining our distance and reserve from the children and telling them, I am the boss, I am the father, I pay the rent. They know that. <laughs> Child guidance, page 265. Child guidance, page 265. Listen to this. There is danger that both parents and teachers will command and dictate too much while they fail to come sufficiently into social relation with their children or scholars. Ellen White continues, they often hold themselves too much reserved and exercise their authority in a cold, unsympathizing manner which cannot win the hearts of their children and pupils. How do you do it? Listen to what she says. If they would gather the children and pupils close to them, show that they love them, and would manifest an interest in all their efforts, and even in their sports, sometimes even being a child with them, they would make the children very happy and would gain their love and confidence. And she continues, and children will more quickly learn to respect and love the authority of their parents and teachers. So you establish authority by becoming their friend, spending time with them, having fun with them. She says even playing sports with them, sometimes being a child with them, and you will make them happy, and then they will recognize your authority. We do not establish authority by forcing the issue, by backing a teenager into a corner where they must either disobey you or back down and lose face. We do not establish authority by having a contest of wills. We establish authority by loving our young people. And when kids are convinced they love, you love them, they will instinctively want to please you and listen to what you have to say. The book, Education, page 288, 289. The teacher should make obedience to your requirements as easy as possible. I could go on, but let me, let me just, two, two other quick things from the counsel that we've been given by the Spirit of Prophecy, and I hope before the message is over, you'll realize that one of the things as parents and teachers we need to do is go back and read those books. There's enormous wisdom in them. Two, two, two quick things I want to mention that, that is brought out in the counsel that this church has been given that we neglect. One of them goes counter to how I was brought up and what I heard in the church and in the school. Spirit of Prophecy says, children and youth should never be published, punished, sorry, should never be punished in public. I, I came from a school of thought which said, you make them an example. So everybody knows. Education, page 293, 294. Don't accuse me, I'm just reading. Education, 293, 294. In speaking of the golden rule, this book says, this rule would lead a teacher to avoid so far as possible of making public the faults or errors of a pupil. As far as possible, you keep their mistakes secret. 
you, the teacher will seek to avoid giving reproof or punishment in the presence of others. It continues, every true teacher will feel that if you have to make a mistake at all, it is better to err on the side of mercy than on the side of severity. She's talking about the youth need to see the justice and value of the punishment you give them, and they need to agree to it. And they need to understand that this is right, and you're doing it not because you're upset with them, but because you love them. The other quick one I want to touch on in passing, and cause a little controversy here, corporal punishment. I'm a social scientist. Scientific research clearly indicates that spanking children is bad for them. But the Bible says, the Bible talks about the use of the rod. There appears to be a conflict, right? No, no, no. There appears to be a conflict between what the Bible says and what science says. And many of us naively, mistakenly say, I'm going to go with the Bible instead of science. Science, rightly understood, does not conflict with the Word of God. Are you listening to me? God is the greatest scientist in the universe. And every true finding of science reflects the mind of God. So when you see a conflict, don't dismiss it. Say, let me try to understand a little better. Because there may be something you need to learn. Spirit of Prophecy says, science and the Bible, rightly understood, do not agree. And then she says, each sheds light on the other. The findings of science help us to better understand what the Bible says and vice versa. Listen. The scientists have not studied how we should ideally use the rod. The scientists have only studied how we actually use the rod. And what the scientific findings are saying is the way in which we use the rod is a problem. And if you think I'm making this up, there's a whole chapter in the book Child Guidance, a book that every parent should read. My wife and I read it before we had kids. And it took us four years before we were ready to have kids. Because when you read that book and you realize the responsibilities you have as a parent, you don't rush into this foolishly. Yes. Yes. But let me just share with you, everything the scientists have found is written in the book Child Guidance. Let me just give you a few examples quickly. Child Guidance, page 244. Before correcting a child, go and pray asking God to subdue your spirit before you correct the child. Page 245. To punish a child in anger does greater evil than remedying what you are trying to correct. It arouses the worst passions of the child. Remember the purpose of discipline is to teach the child self-control. When you are angry and you are out of control, you are in no position to correct that child. Page 246. That's exactly what the scientists have found. Page 246. Do not raise your voice to a high key when correcting the child. Do not lose your self-control. And she continues, the parent who, when correcting a child, gives way to anger, 
is more at fault than the child. I'm not making this up. Child guidance 246. 250. Page 250. We need to spend less time with television and more time with child guidance. Child guidance page 250. Whipping may be necessary, but only when other resorts fail. For some parents, the rod is the only thing they have in their toolbox of discipline. It is a last resort. She said we should not use the rod if we can possibly avoid doing so. And she continues, frequently, one such correction will be enough for a lifetime. So if you're beating your child all the time, all the time about the same thing, something's wrong. <laughs> child guidance, page 251. To hit a child in anger will teach that child to fight and quarrel. Exactly what the scientific research finds. To hit a child in anger will teach that child to fight and quarrel. Finally, page 252, child guidance. But it's a whole chapter on corrective discipline, whole chapter. Never raise your, no, two more quotations on 252. Never raise your hand to hit a child until you can first bow before God and ask his blessing under correction. Remember, the purpose of discipline is to teach the child self-control. You cannot teach self-control when you are out of control. Page 252 again. To shake a child in anger will shake two evil spirits in while shaking one out. Child guidance, page 252, 253. With your heart full of pity and sorrow for your erring children, pray with them before correcting them. They will then see that you do not punish them because they have put you to inconvenience or because you want to vent your displeasure upon them, but from a sense of duty for their good. And they will love and respect you. So you see, science and the Bible do agree. The scientists have been studying what we have been doing, and what we have been doing is wrong, as the spirit of prophecy has enlightened us on what the Bible is really teaching us. Remember, the point of discipline is self-government. Too often, we are out of control when we discipline our children, and we cannot teach them self-control when we are out of control. I've said that is a crisis in educa Christian education for two reasons. First of all, our lives often misrepresent Jesus. Secondly, we have not used discipline the way the Lord wants us to in training our children. But there's a third reason, a final reason I want to talk about today. There's a crisis in Christian education because there's a lack of commitment to our formal system of Christian education. The Seventh-day Adventist Church, to its credit, operates the largest Protestant parochial school system in the world. Why? Because the coming of the children to Jesus is not accomplished without means. Our church schools 
are one set of means that God has put in place to bring our children to Jesus. And there's a crisis in Adventist education across North American division today because enrollment in many of our schools have declined. Many of our elementary schools and high schools have closed in recent years. Um, the cause of this crisis is readily evident in a study that was done by the Church of the Adventist membership in the United States. The study revealed that a large number of Adventist parents, some 40% with high school kids and 50% with college kids, indicated that their children would not be attending an Adventist school or college during the next school year, even when one was available. In 1970, seven out of every 10 Seventh-day Adventist students in college or university were in a Seventh-day Adventist school. Today, it's four out of 10, not even half are there. Most disconcerting is that young Adventists between the ages of 19 to 25 are the age group that show the least belief in the need of an Adventist education and the lowest regard for Adventist education. Our problem is that today's Adventists have an identity crisis. We have lost a sense of our mission. We have forgotten who we are and why we are here. And we are making our decisions about schools and education using the same criteria that most people use in our society. Why do people go to college in America? 75% of US freshmen entering college say they are going to college for one reason, they want to get a better job. And that getting a better job is the most important reason why they're going to college. In another study, 80% of college freshmen said their main goal of attending college was learning how to make more money. We live in an age where wealth and power are worshipped. And too many Christians have bought into the same values of our culture. The purpose of education is not just to get a good job and not just to make money. The goal of education is to prepare our youth for service in this world and for the greater joy of wider service in the world to come. Our mission as Seventh-day Adventists is to fulfill God's command in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Our goal is Matthew 28, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And our schools are one means that God uses to prepare our students, to give them a sense of his wisdom, because you can get knowledge from anybody. You can get knowledge at any institution, but wisdom comes only from God. And our schools are de de designed to prepare us with wisdom and to instill in us a service and values that will lead us out not only to make a living, but to make a difference in the world where we live. And so I say, what are your values? What do you want to get out of education? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But too many Adventists have come of age. We want the best for our children. And we are using only secular criteria to determine what is best. I have been a faculty member only at elite 
the, the most elite schools of higher education in the United States. Yale University, one of the top private schools. University of Michigan, one of the top public institutions. And Harvard University, arguably the top private school in the United States. And I've run into many Seventh-day Adventist parents who want to talk to me about how to get their kid into Yale, or how to get their kid into Harvard or University of Michigan for undergraduate study. And there is a place for kids. But I can just tell you what I did with my children. I said to them, for college, up through college, they can pick any Adventist school they want to go to. Their choice. Give them choice. Any Adventist school. After that, go to the best school you can get into. And a foundation in Christian education is no barrier to success. My older daughter, Delia, who's not with us today, because law school started for her last week, went to Oakwood College, Oakwood University, earned a bachelor's in social work. She decided to go on and pursue a master's in social work. And I told her, go to the best school you can. The number one school of social work in the United States is Washington University in St. Louis. Number two, University of Michigan. They're two Ivy League schools. Columbia University and University of Pennsylvania that have a social work program. With her Oakwood College degree, Oakwood University degree, she applied to all four, got accepted to all four. A foundation in Christian education is not a barrier to success. And she's finished that, and now she just started law school at Case Western University last week. What I'm saying to you this morning, what shall it profit a man or woman if he gains the finest education that this world has to offer by secular criteria but loses his or her own soul? And I don't only have to talk about Delia, I can talk about myself. I am exhibit A, that a foundation in Christian education is not a barrier to success however you want to define it. With my, I went to an Adventist elementary school that didn't have a school. We met in the church. That was the only place. We moved the benches over and had school during the week, put the benches back on Friday afternoon so we'd have church on Sabbath. I went to an Adventist high school that had much to be desired. I went to Caribbean Union College and Adventist College, graduated also from Andrews University and Loma Lynn University, complete Adventist education, and I was still able to get into the University of Michigan for my doctoral program, at the time one of the top three departments in my field in the United States. And I have since matriculated, in fact it's intriguing, when I finished the University of Michigan as a good Adventist, committed to Adventist education, I initially applied only to two schools to teach, Loma Linda University and Andrews University. And neither of them had an opportunity for me, but Yale gave me a job. The point I am making is however you look at it, a foundation in Christian education, I love it the way my friend Pastor Wintley Phipps puts it. He says, when you give God your best, he takes care of everything else. And he also likes to say, you don't compromise to be recognized. God is the best sponsor, best promoter, best mentor in the universe. 
And the biggest thing you need to do, young people, is give your life to Jesus. Give him your dreams. And let him turn your dreams into reality. When we do the best we can, God makes up for the deficiencies. I'm saying a foundation in Christian education with all of its deficiencies is no barrier to success. There are many, many examples. However, some would say correctly, I served on the board of Oakwood University, served on the board of Atlantic Union College for 18 years, I'm new to the board of Loma Linda University as well, and some would say that our schools have room for improvement. I agree. Our elementary schools have room for improvement. I agree. Our high schools have room for improvement. I agree. But if we have an investment and a commitment to an institution that needs improvement, we don't abandon it. We come together and put our money where our mouth is, put our skills and resources where our mouth is, and improve our schools so that they can be the head and not the tail. God wants our schools to be the best. And God has blessed his community with resources so that we can make our schools the best. God places no premium on mediocrity. But do we share the same vision to make our schools everything that they can be? Will we selfishly invest only in ourselves or will we work together using the network ties and the resources that God has given us to make our schools the best that they can be? One of the things I have learned being at public institutions, when I was at Yale, they kicked off the largest campaign ever kicked off by a private institution in the United uh, States, a $2 billion uh, campaign of fundraising. There was two brothers from Texas who gave four gifts of $20 million over a six-month period to Yale University. While at the University of Michigan, they kicked off a $2, million, $2 billion campaign in five years, got the money early, got the money early and expanded the campaign to raise more money. One alumnus of the University of Michigan made a lot of money in Wall Street, gave $100 million to the business school. The next day, the business school was named after him. It's the Ross School of Business, after Mr. Ross, who gave $100 million. Folks, you may not have the same kind of money, but do you have the same kind of commitment? Do you view, as the alumni of Harvard do, that the future of Harvard lies in their hands? And if Harvard is going to become Harvard and not become Yale, they've got to put money in Harvard. Do we have that same kind of commitment for our institutions? It's a challenge for all of us. And for many of us who have been darkened by nature's sun, we have a special responsibility for our struggling black institutions. There are too many black professionals who have experienced a little success and turn their backs on the communities and institutions that gave them the success. If we don't do it, who will? Many of our institutions are hurting more and have fewer resources. Why? Because we are poorer. In America today, on average, a black household still earns 68 cents for every dollar earned by a white household. 
So when you look at our economic base, we are poorer. So yes, our institutions sometimes don't have as much because they're working from a constituency that doesn't have as much resources. But church, we are not self-made. We are standing on the shoulders of those who went before and gave their lives that we can be where we are today. The least that we can do is to invest in the next generation. The Bible teaches unto whom much is given, of him shall much be required. And Jesus said, as you go out and work with the world, begin at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where you are. Jerusalem is your community. God notes where we were born, and that gives us special responsibilities and special obligations. And somebody says, I'm going to touch on this point and then close. Somebody says, I would like to do it. I would like to send my children to Christian schools, but I don't have the money. I'm going to say something that may sound cruel, may sound insensitive, and may sound harsh. In our lives as Christians, now I'm only speaking to Christians, in our lives as Christians, and in our lives as Christian institutions, every time we use money as a reason for not doing what God asks us to do, we sin. As a Christian, God has never asked you to provide the money. He says the cattle up on a thousand hills are his. He says he owns all the resources in the universe. All God asks us to do is to be faithful. So your question is never, do I have the money? That's the wrong question. The question is, is this what God wants me to do? And if it is what God wants you to do, you then say to the Lord, Lord, I am going to be obedient. And then after you have committed yourself to obey, you say, but Lord, I don't have the money. He has the money. And he will give us the money if we recognize our need and ask him for help. And I am not speaking idly here. I went to Adventist schools with no money. I went to Andrews University without money, left Trinidad with $50 in my pocket, saying, I'm going to Andrews. Went to Canada campus. Didn't have enough money. Long story, not going to tell you today. Finished Andrews, was impressed. God wanted me to go to Loma Linda. Went to Loma Linda, applied. Didn't know where the money was going to come from, but I know who my father is. And I know he controls the economic resources of the universe. And by the way, young people, I didn't just sit down and fold my hands and wait to see the money drop from the sky. If God is going to work for you, he wants you to do your part. The secret of success is the union of divine power and human effort. You need to put together all the effort you can. Let me just give you my West Coast story. I graduated from Andrews in June. Applied to Loma Linda in September with no money to go to Loma Linda. I worked three jobs that summer in Bering Springs. Three jobs. Got to California. Remember, drove a little pinto from Bering Springs to San Bernardino. Stopped in Las Vegas in August on my way. It was 120 degrees. I said, this place must be close to hell. Let me keep going. That's the truth. That is the truth. That is the gospel truth. 
Got to San Bernardino, wanted a job, couldn't get a job. Heard a brother in the church, Valley Fellowship Day in San Bernardino. He had a landscaping business. And he could use somebody to help him mowing lawns in 115 degree, 110 degree weather. But it was the only job that God had provided and I was out there mowing lawns in Southern California. My roommate had a truck. He would do moving on the side. I'd go moving with him. He was paying me good to help him move stuff. And then we got this job. It's one of the worst jobs I've ever had. A building had burned down and my roommate got the job to clean the mess. And we would get there before I went to class, six o'clock in the morning, hose down all the ash and the soot and the dirt and the black stuff, get it as wet as possible, tie handkerchiefs around our nose and be scooping that up into his truck. Today I'm a professor at Harvard University. Was I hurt? Was I hurt by the stuff that I did? I'm saying use all the resources and opportunities that God has given you. And if God is on your side, he will bless your efforts. Church this morning, there's a crisis in Christian education. We are not representing Jesus. We are not disciplining our children correctly. And we are not committed to the formal system of Christian education that God has given this church. We are blocking the pathway to Jesus. And in our scripture reading this morning, it's one of the few times it is pictured that Jesus was upset. Jesus wants the little children to come to him. And he's upset and angry by people who get in the way. His indignation is a clear indication of how Jesus feels about children. They are his. They're not your children. They're God's children. They are only loaned to you to take care for him. He has purchased them with his own blood. They are the claims of his love. He looks upon the children with unutterable longing. His heart goes out to every child in this church. And Jesus says, please allow them to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. How many this morning want to say, Lord, I want to be an instrument in your hand in bringing your children to you instead of a barricade along the pathway of children getting to Jesus? If that's your prayer, if that's your desire, I want to ask you to stand with me for a commitment that you are committing yourself today to join Jesus' team, to be part of a task force working to improve Christian education by your life and example, by your dependence on Jesus, by your studying and learning what he has said to us about how we need to relate to our children, and by making commitment of your time, of your influence, of your money, of your effort to our formal system of Christian education. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your love that doesn't let us go. 
We thank you that in spite of our failures and mistakes, you love us still. And so we thank you today for the salvation full and free we find in Jesus. We thank you today, Lord, that no matter what we have done in the past, underneath us right now are your everlasting arms of love and mercy and grace. And as we stand in rededication of our lives to you, we want to turn a new page. We want to live anew for you today. And we claim your promise that whoever comes, you will in no wise cast out. We claim your promise that we don't have to do this by ourselves, but you will be with us to strengthen us and to enable us through the power of your presence unto the end of the world. Seal the decisions and commitments that we make today, and we'll be careful to give you the honor, the glory, and the praise is our prayer in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.